Welcome to Plowing Through Brexit, Farmers Guardian's Brexit podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest Farmers Guardian Plowing Through Brexit podcast with me, Will Evans. And me, Abby Kay. Today we've got two great guests on the line to talk about the regulatory framework for plant science post-Brexit and whether leaving the EU could open the door to a new ag revolution in the UK. So first up, we have Mark Buckingham, who is the chair of the Agricultural Biotechnology Council, as well as being the corporate engagement lead for the UK and Ireland at Bayer. Hi, Mark. Hello, Abby and Will. Hi. And we've also got mixed farmer Paul Temple. Paul has participated in GM field scale evaluation trials, which examine the safety of GM maize, beet and oilseed rape, and is a past vice president for the NFU, chairman of the Copac Gica Cereals, Oilseeds and Protein Group, and founder of the European Biotech Forum. Hi, Paul. Hi there. That's quite the CVs, chaps. I'm feeling very unaccomplished right now. <laughs> um, Mark, before we go any further, perhaps you can start off by briefly explaining what the role of the Agricultural Biotechnology Council is. Sure. Well, we're a sort of trade association for companies working with innovative plant breeding. So we were set up um, around 15 years ago, uh, focusing on GM crops. But now we're, we're more focused on gene editing and the latest techniques, as well as still working on GM. And our members are BASF, Bayer, Corteva and Syngenta. And our goal is just to contribute to the conversation around innovation, making the case for it um, and for the value of plant breeding um, as we face challenges like climate change, growing food demand around the world, um, at the need to be more sustainable and productive. Um, in agriculture uh, and the role that plant breeding can play in in meeting some of those challenges. Mm. Paul, uh, we see a lot of headlines about advanced breeding techniques like GM and gene editing. And DEFRA Secretary Michael Gove has been very positive about gene editing in particular. What do you think the likelihood is of the UK embracing those technologies after Brexit, if Brexit does ever happen? Uh, we make that joke every week, don't we? <laughs> yeah, and you, can, and you can keep doing it. I, genuinely, I think we have a, a positive opportunity. I mean, nothing's going to materialise in the field, but we have good research in the UK, and I think if the government sort of makes the right noises, it will encourage people to actually look at what, especially gene editing, has to offer. Um, I think there's growing awareness that genetics are going to be the key to you know, finding solutions to the problems we face and continuing to sort of produce food at the levels we are in a sustainable way. Mm. And what about what about Labour? I mean, it's, it's possible we could have Jeremy Corbyn in number 10 next. Would he be as open as the Conservatives to this kind of technology, do you think, Paul? I, that one, I, I really wouldn't be able to guess. I, yeah. I think... We're in circumstances at the moment, actually, that we've had a unique period uh, which we'll look back in history and think, why didn't we see the signs earlier? We've managed through globally increasing harvests to supply the world, and the prices have remained relatively low. And that will change, and it'll probably change within a government's lifetime. And I don't think any sensible government would want to rule out any options that might actually help us produce food um, in the levels that we have to do in a more sustainable way. Hmm. That's a very optimistic outlook, Paul. (laughs) Well, it is difficult to remain optimistic. I I was in the European Parliament a year ago and realised it was 20 years 
since I passed the field, uh, took part in the field scale trials, and Europe has spent its time talking about it and doing absolutely nothing. Mm. Well, I think we'll come That's on to bit. that later. Um, mm. In the meantime, what, what kind of transformative potential do these techniques actually have in practical terms for UK farmers? Uh, from a far, from a farmer's point, well, Mark will be better capable, but I just think there's a, a huge number of opportunities to, to solve some of the problems we we currently sort of require pesticides to deal with. Yeah, Mark, you're obviously heavily involved in this. Can you give us a, a specific example of a crop that's been beneficially modified through these techniques? Well, I mean, there's a range of, of GM crops, which, as Paul says, have been going for, for well over 20 years. And there's an enormous amount of science and, and economic research on, on their benefits. Um, so so that's, that's um, well established, like um, less pesticide use, higher yields, um, greater income, for farmers, especially smallholder farmers in developing countries, mm-hmm. um, reduce soil erosion, um, a huge range of benefits. Um, in terms of gene editing, the, the products are mainly still in research and there's the absolute full range of, of, of areas being looked at by scientists. So um, uh, tools like nitrogen uh, and water use efficiency, particularly in rice, some of the the, the the greatest number of projects is, is, is in rice, in, in gene editing, actually in China. They're one of the leaders in, in gene editing globally. Um, but other, other techniques are around reducing food waste. So um, better cold storage characteristics for potatoes um, is a project in the USA and also um, reducing acrylamide levels. So a, a potentially uh, safer potato, um, another US project. But there's um, heat stress, uh, uh, water use efficiency, um, yield quality projects um, in a wide range of crops and all around the world. So it's a very, very broad um, approach that researchers are taking. Mm. Amazing opportunities there then. Paul, um, you've voiced your frustration with the EU's regulatory framework. In fact, you just did it a couple of moments ago. Um, Can you explain what it is about the EU's approach that is holding us back so much? Well, there's two elements. One is the hypocrisy of the situation. If you're going to deny European farmers a choice of these crops, then don't subject my marketplace to other farmers that have the advantage. And we, Europe, you know, ships millions of tons of GM produce in because we're protein deficit, particularly. But the other, my other frustration is the message it sends out to those looking to research. Um, you know, in the, the, this field of genetics and invest in it. And if Europe continues as it has done to send this negative message, this research will be carried out in other parts of the world. We won't be able to tailor it to our unique circumstances and we will be reliant on others. And, I, you know, we haven't anything that's going to immediately drop into a field, but the research and seeing it at first hand is so important. Mm. I suppose that precautionary approach has been manifested by um, the European Court of Justice ruling recently on gene editing, um, where they said uh, gene editing would have to be governed by the same regs as GM. Um, That's effectively signalled, as you say, that the EU isn't exactly the most favourable location for for research and development. So if you contrast that to countries like Canada and Australia and Argentina, for example, how much will this actually put UK farmers at a disadvantage? It's an incredible disadvantage. I mean, Canada has, uh, GM Canola and has done for years. Um, Australia's em- embraced it. Um, Argentina, uh, interestingly, 
Uh, I was there recently looking at how they survived in sort of a, a low-income scenario, and that's what switched them to no-till, and uh, that was possible because of GM crops dramatically reduced the cost of production. But the big plus was the benefit to the soils, uh, and it's you know it's the ability to see it from a, a whole perspective of how it relates to the environment of production that's really important. The message the European Court of Justice said was actually we're not really interested in science. Um, because gene editing is totally different to genetic modification, but they dropped it in the same regulation. Mm. Mark, I'm sure you spend a lot of time looking at this and talking to your European colleagues. Is is there any chance at all of the EU's attitudes to this technology changing anytime soon? Well, I hope so, and I agree with what Paul said that, that it's it's important. It does change, um, and 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 there was a positive um, uh, European Council meeting of, of ag ministers from around Europe um, a couple of weeks ago, where they they recognised that that decision by the European Court of Justice to put these new breeding techniques in the same category as GM was 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 scientifically unjustified and and would mean less research and less investment here in Europe. Um, and so so there, there's the, the, the right arguments are taking place. Does that translate into better policy? Um, it's it's much too soon to tell. So we really do need to keep up the pressure because, um, as you said, those other countries, Australia, Argentina, Canada, USA, Brazil, um, that they they take productive um, efficient, sustainable farming more seriously as a business at a policy level. And and that's something we've got to improve in Europe to, to have these opportunities. Um, because back to the point you made earlier, um, uh, technology is, 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 is progressive. It shouldn't be a political issue one way or another. It's, it's, it should be about science and choice. And, and effective technology helps everyone who wants to access it. If we want a, a, um, a traditional or artisan you know, type of agriculture, that's a luxury. That isn't progressive. Um, that's an expensive choice. Um, having, having options of technology helps everyone ultimately, and, and that's what we should be pushing for. Mm. It's really interesting that they're having those conversations at the top level. Um, I'm guessing that maybe they could look at introducing some policy then on gene editing specifically that would undermine that ECJ ruling. Is that your kind of thoughts on it? Mark? Yes, I mean that is that is what they're saying. They're saying they they um, they're not disagreeing with the ECJ ruling. They're saying it suggests they need to look again at the GM legislation and 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 yeah. future proof it, I guess, so that as as science and, and research brings up new opportunities, new ways uh, uh, of doing plant breeding and, and um, new t- potentially new tools for, for, for farmers, that, that the, the regulation should be flexible enough to allow those to come forward rather than blocking them in the way that the, the current GM regulations have blocked GM. Right. Um, so moving back to the UK, uh, without wanting to state the obvious, we know Mrs May hasn't been exactly the most popular PM around. In fact, just before we started recording this podcast, she stepped down. So that was big news for us. Um, but her checkers deal and the withdrawal agreement were probably even less popular than she was. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that they won't form the basis of any new relationship with the EU after she's gone, depending on who takes her place. Um, are you concerned, Mark, that the common rule book proposed in the Chequers Agreement could constrain the UK's ability to diverge from EU rules on things like this after Brexit, if it, if it does end up coming into force? Yes, I think you're spot on. That's, that, is a, that is a risk looking forward that we might, um, if, as you say, if Brexit happens, but we remain very close to Europe, we might end up 
um, with a sort of worst of both worlds situation um, where where we, we don't have access to technology, um, but we don't have access to the to the single market either. So um, uh, that that is definitely a risk, and um, yeah, we need we need. The UK to, to focus on a uh, uh, focus on the science, you know, make regulations based on actual risk uh, that are proportionate to that actual risk, um, and and that encourage innovation, um, mm. and, and, and uh, work with researchers to, to to get innovation into farmers' hands, and and then farmers can work out what the most valuable um, opportunities are. Mm. The other big problem that I can foresee coming down the line, which I haven't heard people discuss very much, is about the devolved nations um, who are much less open than England to the idea of GM in particular. I struggle to find an on-the-record position on gene editing from those administrations, but we know Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have all banned GM crops. How much of a problem could this be for the UK domestic market if English farmers are given access to technology that others elsewhere are denied? Do you think it will make those farmers less competitive? And do you have a sense for whether farmers on the ground in the devolved nations actually want to grow these crops but can't? Um, Paul, perhaps you can answer that first and then Mark can jump in if you like. At the moment, um, the devolved nations are sending a, a very much a negative message, which um, is somewhat of a surprise, especially for Scotland that prides itself on science and, and actually could be a real hindrance given the there's £62 million has just gone into advanced plant um and a, a, a barley hub uh, up at the James Hutton Institute. I would hope, um, this again, I think this comes back to the fact that what we're talking about at the moment is if we haven't got crops that are going to be immediately there, what we really yeah. want to do is encourage the open-minded approach to what gene editing can do within our country's context to take plant breeding forward and solve some of the problems we're going to face. Um, we are going to have to look for sort of yield jumps that we haven't had in the past, and that isn't going to be possible through a conventional route. Um, so it is, it is genuinely a problem at the moment, but I think if we sort of have an open-minded and push this from the context of encouraging research, we can um, hopefully open a more constructive conversation than we've had in the past. Mm. Yeah. Matt? Yeah, I, I completely agree. That's exactly the way forward. That is, it's um, it's about looking at individual supply chains and, and offering some choice. I think it's a, it's. I think that the, the GM discussion over two decades has shown it doesn't work for governments to sort of pick technologies. That's that really should be at a farm level for individual managers to say, well, what do, what what works for their farm business and their supply chain and their customers um, and their situation. And and the, the the government and the regulation should just look at our technology safe um, uh, and and make a scientific assessment on that basis, and then the, the supply chain will choose well who is going to use what technology. But we've also learned over those twenty years that you can have that choice. You can keep technology separate. We've seen um, you know enormous growth, a hundredfold growth in in use of GM crops in the USA. At the same time as we've seen big growth in their organic market um, mm. in recent decades, mm. um, same in Australia, uh, we see you know premium uh, wines and other foods from Australia at the same time as very rapid adoption of GM technology. I think, yeah. um, same for pests. You know we're having a big debate uh, and, and experience with flea beetle after um, certain crop protection products have been withdrawn. Um, beetles are a good target for GM uh, protein uh, insect protection traits. 
Um, no one's working on that, to my knowledge, for the UK. Um, and it would take 10 plus years to get a product uh, off the ground. But, um, you know, if we want a, a targeted, um, uh, effective solution to some of these problems, we should be uh, deploying the science. And I hope that politicians across uh, uh, the UK would, would, would look at those opportunities. Yeah. I mean, the, the two letters, uh, GM, are very emotive. Um, the very mention of them has often caused some extreme reactions with the public, as we, as we know. Is that still the case now, or are attitudes to this technology starting to slowly change, Paul? I don't, from the general public, I don't um, see the kind of aversion to it that there was uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. I think the NGOs play it for what it's worth. Um, it's hugely irresponsible uh, and to be honest I, whilst I know some people might think well let's change the language I, I have no problem with being honest and upfront about look this is what actually happens in agriculture uh, and this is the important and when you show people it at first I took a group of uh, student teachers to the field when we had the GM trials and they had a mindset of what it meant but you put them in the actual field and show them what it means and all of a sudden, this wasn't something to frighten them. This was perfectly sensible science. Mm. Um, so I, I don't think we should shy away from using, using clear language as to what we're doing, whether it's gene editing or genetic modification or using pesticide products. Um, I think really being honest is important. How you get it across is really difficult when you have NGOs that can constantly put subjective, scare, scare-ridden um elements of out in the media without it being easily rebutted because obviously in science you can't say with 100 percent certainty all the time mm, absolutely mm. mark we're hearing so much talk about climate change now and governments powerful organizations are all setting ambitious targets around things like emissions how much is is this going to be a factor in gaining support for these technologies I think it helps for sure because innovation is the way to address those challenges. How do we maintain or increase productivity while reducing the impact of that production? Um, you, you can't do the same things you've been doing because that would that would have the same result. You want to, uh, you know, be more productive but put in less resource or have less impact, and that that means innovation, which means um, science and, and R and D. So I think it does help the conversation. Um, and and there's many examples of of you know less greenhouse gas emissions, less water use, uh, better heat stress tolerance in crops, etc. From from research that that are directly relevant to that conversation. So and just to comment on your sort of um, public perception uh, question, um, ABC did some survey work last year, um, uh, looking at asking 1,600 18 to 30 year olds about their attitudes to a range of farming technologies. And about 20% of respondents said they were uh, uh, you know, unsure or, or negative about GM uh, in, in, in the food sector. So, so 80% were, were reasonably comfortable. And so it, it's still, yeah, there's, there's, there's a degree of controversy there, but there's also a very large majority who, who don't object. Um, so I think you know, we, we, we should you know, be prepared to offer choice. That is a basis given those challenges like climate change um, there's a there's a strong basis of support for offering choices of these technologies mm. and paul on the farmer side attitudes are changing too and people are beginning to look at things like soil health much more um, than perhaps they have in the recent past 
Will tells me that you spoke really well on this subject at the Oxford Farming Conference last year. Do you think farmers are becoming more open to things like GM and gene edit editing? I, I certainly think um, they're aware of it. Um, I do feel frustrated that, unlike me, t you know, a whole generation has missed the opportunity to see it in field at first hand in you know research trials. That would have been really helpful. The the soil health, though, I think, is certainly something that has maybe highlighted some of the potential techniques that you can have, and and, and if these help the process, that's fine. But I genuinely for Farmers, for it to mean something, um, they need to see it in a field. You yes. can put all the articles out you like and email transmissions and, and stuff on the web. But most farmers, they, they gain their knowledge from farmer to farmer or seeing it in a field situation. And it would be great if, uh, if the government, at the very least, um, could actually help facilitate in-field trials so that Farmers are perfectly capable of making their mind up as to whether it, it offers benefit or is use or will fit their circumstances. Mm. Well, let's hope we see more of that in future. OK, well, sadly, I think we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you to both Mark and Paul for taking time out of the day to talk to us. And to everyone listening, thank you. And keep your eyes peeled for the next Farmers Guardian Plowing Through Brexit podcast, which will be out next month. And in the meantime, you can keep up with all the daily political goings on and how they're affecting agriculture on Farmers Guardian's Brexit Hub at fginsight.com forward slash Brexit.